0: This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, good morning, church family. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you all today. Um, Travis asked me if I would preach, and he said, don't worry about First Samuel, just pick a passage and, and go with it. Which is just so not helpful to me, because if, I mean, I'm like, I could pick up where you left off. I'll study, I'll do it, give me direction. He said, no, take it. So in these uh, times, in these opportunities, um, I guess I find myself drawn to passages that always make me uncomfortable, um, which I think is just the Holy Spirit working in me, saying, all right, I'm going to put you under the microscope a little bit this week as you prepare. So this is one of those passages. Uh, We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2, looking at the first seven verses today. The book of Revelation opens with the beginning of John's vision that God gives, that as, as uh, uh, as Daniel read that he said that this is the things that are and the things that are to come. And so it begins with the things that are with these seven letters to churches in Asia Minor, which is Western Turkey. And so we have uh, letters to these seven churches. The whole book is, real, is written to the seven churches and by extension then to the rest of, of the church universal. But um, there are specific instructions, there specific messages to these seven churches um, that also then again apply outward, beyond them, to all of us as followers of Jesus. So... Um, we will look at the first of these messages today, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus. However, it may, be, it may help us greatly to think about the background of that church, the history of that church, as context for this letter. Um, so we will first take a few minutes to consider the history of the Ephesian church as, as recorded in, uh, in the New Testament, and then we will look at specifically what Jesus is saying through the Apostle John 2. The church at Ephesus and through Ephesus to the rest of us. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, which is true and strong, which pierces us like a surgeon's scalpel to expose what needs to be healed. And, and to expose sin that should be confessed and repented of so that we may walk in the light as you are in the light. Father, as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, I pray that it would be, uh, as it always is, living and active in us. That it, we would receive the implanted word with meekness and produce a harvest of righteousness and obedience. And Father, that you would... Remind us this morning how you love us and how you call us to love you. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So first some information about Ephesus. Ephesus, as I said, is a city in western Turkey near the coast, a few miles inland of the coast on the banks of what used to be the River Castor before it dried up over the years. Over the centuries, really, Uh, Ephesus was not a capital city of the region, but was a major commercial and cultural center with probably around 500 or 600 thousand people. So it was a major metropolis in this day and age. It was a free city; did not have a Roman garrison. It was not occupied by Roman soldiers, even though it was under the Roman Empire. Um, But because it it was a uh, it was a bustling um, hub of of ideas and religion, and money, and uh, it was, a, it was a, major, a major city. And it also was the site of the temple of Artemis, uh, sometimes called Diana in Latin, um, a goddess of the region. And the life and economy of the city was wrapped up in that cult and was wrapped up in that worship, the worship of Artemis and the temple there. So we see the beginnings of, or the establishment of, the church in Ephesus back in Acts chapter 18, where, um, and I'll kind of give you the overview if you don't, don't want to turn there, if you want to keep your place in, in Revelation 2. In Acts chapter 18, we have Paul briefly visiting along with Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife ministry team who worked with him and, and served with him in his missionary journeys. This was the second missionary journey of Paul. And he was there briefly, and then he left them there and went on, but came back later on his third visit. In the meantime, Aquila and Priscilla met Apollos and helped to teach Apollos uh, a, a, more, uh, a fuller and more complete um, understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And then he went on his way, and they stayed. And then Paul returned, reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue for a while, and then he and the disciples went and met in a, an, another um, Discussion hall. I think it was the Hall of Tyrannus, and would talk about the gospel. And Paul stayed there in Ephesus for about three years before moving on. During that time, or towards the end of that time, um, the the church well, the church was growing. The 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 people who believed were growing, and miraculous healings were taking place. Um, there were uh, uh, exorcisms as demons were being cast out of people who were oppressed, and it it, it was in, not only were these uh, miraculous signs taking place, but there were the uh, the fruit of true repentance and true faith becoming evident. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, Acts chapter nineteen, verses eighteen through twenty, this is what uh, 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 Luke, the writer of Acts, recounts. He says. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As the word of God was taught, as the gospel was proclaimed, and people were coming to Believe in and follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. they were confessing and repenting of the things that they were doing that were sinful, including an actual not just not just confessing in word but showing indeed their true repentance by burning these valuable books of, of of magical arts of incantations of all of this you know false idol worship to Artemis and others. they were destroying the things that tied them to their past life, no matter the value or cost on the market. So this is evidence of true faith, of true repentance. And what we see is that this was now starting to affect the city. So much so that Demetrius the silversmith gathered with him uh, the artisans and silversmiths and, and, and workers that, whose, whose business relied on the worship of Artemis and they said these people are are turning our city upside down and are affecting our livelihood. Oh yeah, and, and they're insulting our great goddess Artemis. But like they're they're hurting our business. We have to do something about this. And so a riot breaks out as these these men these these these. Uh, Craftsmen starting a riot yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, running, stampeding through town, screaming this like an unruly mob because the Christians were preaching a gospel that was changing lives and it was cutting in on business. That that riot was, was... talked down, the town clerk was wi- wisely talked them down from from burning the place down, practically. And at that, about that point, Paul left. And around that time, he, was, he traveled to a, a nearby city called Miletus. And he actually called the, the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. And he was going to give them some instructions before he said goodbye. We have that in Acts chapter 20. Um, and I'll read a part of that to you. In Acts chapter 20, verse 25, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And he continues. So Paul warns them. He's like, I'm not going to see you again. So I'm going to give you this warning. There will rise false teachers. There will rise even people among your own church who will start spreading things that are not true. Be on guard so that they don't carry people away. This was his warning to, to the Ephesian church before he left the Ephesian elders. Paul would later um, write uh, 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 an epistle to the Ephesian church. We have that. It's called the book of Ephesians, very good. And he would also write to Timothy because he would send Timothy and his fellow worker Tychicus to work in and among the Ephesian Christians. Timothy was an elder, a pastor in the Ephesian church. So the letters to first, uh, the pastoral epistles of first and second Timothy contain uh, these letters that contain so many warnings against False doctrine and being, uh, uh, warnings to beware of false teachers are being sent to the pastor of Ephesus. So over and over again, there is this admonition, this 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 command: be on guard against falsehood. Church tradition holds that Timothy was eventually martyred in Ephesus uh, by those who, uh, because he still opposed. The Artemis cult. And so some early church records indicate that Timothy was probably beaten to death by followers of Artemis because he spoke out against Artemis in Ephesus. Later, um, church, early church tradition, church records, also show that the apostle John eventually made his way to Ephesus and served in Ephesus probably as an elder in the Ephesian church during the last few decades of his life. It was in Ephesus that John was arrested and from Ephesus sent 60 miles to an island called Patmos to be in exile and it was there that he received the vision of revelation that we read today. So we have this history of, this, of a church that showed true repentance, true faith, whose ministers and apostles uh, repeatedly warned against false doctrine, against believing what is false, accepting a false gospel. Who repeatedly warned to be on guard against those who would lie and try to steal away the people of God. And now, we have a letter. This is in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So the angel of the church in Ephesus right? the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we have a much like uh, epistles, uh, other epistles in the New Testament. This is who it's to, this is who it's from. Now this word to the angel, you saw earlier, you heard earlier where it said that the seven stars in, in Jesus' hand in chapter 1, are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's some disagreement over whether this means a literal angel who is given charge or care over the church of Ephesus, or perhaps the word angel is actually should be translated messenger, and it's referring to the pastor or elder of the church, or even maybe that angel here is a representative of the spirit general, general spirit of the church as a whole. This is unclear. The best arguments are for the first two choices. But either way, don't miss this. This angel is one of the stars that Jesus holds in his powerful right hand. This should remind us of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, I hold in my hand, and none can snatch them out. In the same way, Jesus holds the angels of these churches in his right hand. And none could snatch them away from him. He is also the one who walks among the lampstands. Note that he is not distant. He is not removed. But he is present and active in the life of his church. He is not a far off God who you have to get his attention. But he is the one who walks among us. Who walks among his people. uh, uh, As as God said to Israel in Leviticus 26, he will make his dwelling with his covenant people and walk among them as their God. So don't run past verse 1. This introduction is, is in a sense, it's a kind of thus saith the Lord, like the Old Testament would say. And it's a reminder of exactly who is sending this letter, not some disinterested deity or disconnected Savior, but one who is attentive and and active among his people. Jesus then commends the work of the Ephesian church in verses 2 and 3. Look what it says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jesus sees and remembers the obedient works of his people and he praises the good works of this church. They listened to the warnings, didn't they? They listened to the warnings that Paul gave and that Timothy gave and that John gave. They listened would not bear with those who were evil. They would not bear with those who taught what is false, who were false apostles trying to fool them and deceive them. Jesus praises their good works. He praises their patient endurance in spite of opposition, their zeal for purity, and their commitment to church discipline and corporate holiness. He praises their discernment in carefully weighing teaching and teachers and wisely rejecting those who are not of God. Notice in verse 3 that they are enduring and bearing up for his name's sake. This should recall for us the Sermon on the Mount first where Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice when they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of him and his gospel. Or in John 15 when he warns them that you will be persecuted for my name's sake, but do not fear, I have overcome the world. This same attitude is expressed in Acts chapter 5, where Peter and the other apostles who had been arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel of Jesus praised God that they had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. So here also, Jesus praises the faithfulness of these Ephesians who have endured and not grown weary, even as the name of Jesus and the message of his cross Brings reproach upon them. The dishonor of the world is nothing compared to the commendation of their master. However, as great as this church appears on the surface, and as much good work as they are doing, Jesus points to a very serious sin that plagues their congregation. And I say that word specifically a sin. Not an area of improvement, or area for that needs improvement. Not an opportunity for growth, but a sin that must be repented of. What is their sin? Verse four. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Their sin is lovelessness. In all of their activity, in all of their good works, they are losing or have lost their love. Devotion has grown cold and curdled into obligation. Now a question can be asked here, love for whom? Is it talking about love for Jesus that has grown cold? Is it talking about their love for each other as brothers and sisters? Perhaps their love for the lost people around them who need to hear the gospel? I would propose that it's actually all three, that it begins with a coldness towards their Lord that then infects their relationships with each other and their attitude towards the outside world. In their efforts to rightly and righteously protect and defend true doctrine, they have grown cold in their orthodoxy. Now this doesn't mean they were wrong to love the truth, not at all. They and we are commanded to hold fast to the truth that was delivered once for all to the saints. But just as the prophets warned Israel that their love for God was growing cold, leading to spiritual danger, this warning stands here. Love is what should characterize the disciples of Jesus. Love for God Love for each other. Love for others. After all, remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room in in John chapter 13. A new commandment I am giving to you. Love one another. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or what this same apostle John wrote in the epistle of 1 John. He said, For this is, in chapter 3 of 1 John, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And later, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has the eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Ephesian church, in all its good work of ministry, And doctrinal discernment and patient endurance and faith is losing its grip on the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The commandments that Jesus said summed up in the Law and the Prophets. The commandments that are echoed throughout the teaching of the New Testament. We must love God. We must love each other if we are to be his disciples and we are to show that we are his disciples to the watching world. I should pause here and ask. Perhaps you, if, hmm. perhaps this doesn't apply to you because you never had a first love in the first place. It's possible that maybe you grew up in a church like this, learning the doctrines, following the rules, but you never actually came to the cross as a sinner, confessed your sins, that you are guilty before God, that you deserve his wrath. And put your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died in our place, taking the the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself, and then rising again in victory. Perhaps you haven't lost your first love because you never had your first love. I would invite you to, to consider this. Do you love God? Have you ever loved God? Or have you just been doing the religious stuff of God? So what does Jesus, the great physician, prescribe for a church in this serious condition? We find three R's in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He begins by saying, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. They are told to think back to their beginnings, to recall the love and devotion they had for Jesus and his gospel at first. This isn't a command to remember their past performance. Let's face it, their performance right now is pretty good. Instead, This is really a plea to recall what God has done for them and how they responded to it. How they were sinners facing God's righteous wrath, but through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that wrath had been satisfied and they had been reconciled to God and adopted into God's family, made into a kingdom of priests. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, do you remember how amazing grace is? Do you remember how it felt to be rescued? Do you remember how you loved much because you were forgiven much? Not only are they to remember, but they are to repent. They are to confess they have sinned. Ask for the Spirit of God to, to change their hearts and, the desi- and their desires and, and, and rekindle their love for God and then go and turn and go in a different way. They are to remember, they are to repent, and finally they are to return. I cheated a little bit with that last R. They are to return. They are to repeat what they did at first. What do we do when we become followers of Jesus. We're passionate about reading his word. We we pray, we serve and love the church. We, We tell people around us what God has done, not as if we're trying to earn God's love or favor, but as a response to remembering what he has done for us. Like a newlywed who's giddy about marrying their beloved, we are delighted by our relationship with our Lord Jesus as the Holy Spirit dwelling, now dwelling within us makes us more delighted in the things of God. Jesus tells these Ephesians, whose love has grown cold, to remember the gospel, to repent of their lovelessness, and to return to what they did at first as a way of, of by the Spirit's help, rekindling that love For God. With this diagnosis comes a warning in the second half of verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says if this church does not repent, their condition will grow worse. And he will judge them as a church. Here in verse 5 it says he will remove their lampstand, meaning he will literally unchurch them. Remember, the lampstand represents the churches. He says, I will take away your church. (laughs) He will take away the preaching of the gospel, faithful ministers, the ordinances, all the blessings that they have as being part of a biblical church. Does that sound a little extreme? Well, consider this. Consider the warning that Paul gives in Second Timothy 3 and 4 that there is a time coming when people will turn away from true teaching and gather false teachers to scratch their ears and feed them pretty lies and silly myths. Is that not the judgment of God on a church that has abandoned their love for him? That they will soon not just abandon their love for God but abandon their love for the truth. They will be unchurched. Jesus' warning to Ephesus is clear. They cannot ignore this issue and go about with business as usual. Yet even after this dire warning, there is still more encouragement. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now this is kind of like out of nowhere. Oh, oh, by the way, this also is a good thing you're doing. But... Let's, look, let's consider that for a second. Jesus commends their opposition to the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about who they are. They're mentioned, again, a little bit later in the letter to Pergamum in verses 14 and 15. Mentioned in reference to Balaam. You may remember the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Like everybody remembers the donkey bit where the donkey talks to him, but there's more after that. Because Balaam is used by the, the Canaanite kings to try to uh, lead the people of Israel astray through sexual morality, through idolatry. Where he tries, he he's the instrument that is used to send temptation among among them, to try to lure Israel off of the true uh, path and off of the worship of their God to the worship of other gods. This and some other references in early church writings have led theologians to suggest that the theology of the Nicola- Nicolaitan sect is marked by indulgence, pleasure-seeking, sexual immorality, all possibly under the guise of Christian liberty or a misunderstanding of grace. Jesus here commends the Ephesians for recognizing the error of denying God's holiness to try to elevate a version of grace. This is often an error in our day by those who seek to be more loving, so-called, but who deny the righteousness of God in the process. We cannot truly love God or others by dismissing or minimizing the holiness of God. Jesus here commends the Ephesians who are, still, who are struggling in their love for him, who have abandoned the love they had at first. He said, you have not completely lost your way. Jesus closes this letter by encouraging those, who have been given, who, encouraging those who have been given ears to hear to listen what is said to all the churches. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means that all of these letters are for all the church, including us. And so for those who have an ear to hear, a phrase that you may remember from Jesus. Those who have been given ears to hear by the Spirit of God, let us listen to what God is saying to his church. And then he closes, uh, 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 closes verse seven by making them a promise. The one who conquers will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. What an encouragement to a group of believers who are toiling, patiently enduring, bearing up under persecution for for his name's sake. A few comments about this uh, statement. First, recall that Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 were cut off from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden after they had fallen into sin. What sin had stolen, Jesus restores by his death and his resurrection so that those who are his will once again have access to the tree of life. I would also note this, and this is, I thought this was really interesting. The symbol for Artemis and eventually came to be the symbol representing Ephesus in the first century is a date palm tree. Date palm tree. It's on the, stamped onto the idols, stamped onto the uh, religious implements, even some of the currency. As, as if you, th- this is a symbol that Demetrius the silversmith probably stamped onto things an unknown number of times. Artemis is associated with a tree. So here, Jesus says that the believers who forsake the palm of Artemis can look Forward to partaking of the tree of life, the palm of Artemis as a as a pale and pitiful copy or imitation of the true tree of life, tree of life that is described at the end of the book of Revelation twenty two as follows. Er, Revelation twenty two verses one and two says, uh, "Then the angel showed me the river." of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and, and of the Lamb. This is in the new heavens, in the new, earth, in the new Jerusalem rather. Um, through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the tree of life that is given, that, that, is, that is available to those who conquer. But how do we conquer? Not by righteous activity, not by works we compile. In fact, Revelation 12 actually mentions those who conquer. In Revelation 12, verse 10, in the middle of a, a, a description of how Satan was thrown to earth and, and attacks the believers, this is what he says. Revelation 12, 10. says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. The one who conquers does not conquer through religious activity. The one who conquers does not conquer through encyclopedic knowledge of systematic theology, though those are good things. The one who conquers, conquers by leaning on what Jesus, our champion, has done for us. We conquer through the shed blood of the Lamb. And we conquer through the word of our testimony how we have been rescued by God. Our victory is all of Christ. And to those who conquer, we have access to the tree of life through him. So, what do we do with this letter? How does a letter written to a church in Turkey more than 1,900 years ago make a difference? Here and now in Houston, Texas in 2018. Well, um, I wanted to bring this letter to us this morning because for years, as I said, this passage has made me just a little bit uncomfortable and I think the reason is because deep down I'm from Ephesus. My heart and my passion may be drawn to study and theology and even religious activity and yet I would find myself growing cold to my Savior, cold to his people. I can become proud in the rightness of my doctrine instead of letting the truths of the scriptures drive me to my knees in worship. My faith can stay way up in my head and never push its way into my heart. I'm from Ephesus. And I may not be the only one in this room. So this morning, let me challenge us with this. He or she who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to Ephesus and to us. In our doctrinal devotion, let us be careful not to let our love grow cold. And if it does, may we be eager to remember how we have been saved by God's great mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. Repent of our lack of love and return to those things we did when we first believed so that the Holy Spirit may rekindle our love for God, for each other, and for those who need to hear the good news. This is not about mere doing. This is about delight. This is about devotion. This is about saying, Lord, I love you. Help me love you. Help my lack of love. Next week we'll look at how as our love for God grows it overflows outward into love for others. So my last encouragement for us is this. In a few moments we will sing about God's love for us. My encouragement to us is this. Sing. Sing and remember. Remember how deep the Father's love is for you. And rejoice in it because He is good. Let's pray. Our Father, it is easy. It is easy to get so focused on defending, defending, defending against error that we forget that our first duty is to love you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our strength. And that through loving you, we love others. We love each other as, you're, as the family that we love each other as brothers and sisters, that we would love our neighbors, that we would love people who are in need and need to hear the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would soften us if we have become hard, that you would warm us if we have become cold, that you would bring to our memories and bring, bring afresh to our hearts uh, uh, that fire of love and appreciation for all that you have done for us that we could not ever do for ourselves. Father, give us hearts that love you sincerely. Give us hearts that love each other with compassion and joy. Give us hearts that see our neighbors and coworkers workers and, and the people down the street or at the gas station as people who need to be rescued like we were rescued. Call us back to yourself. Father, if there's anyone here who has never known you, I pray that you would reveal to them their sin, that they are guilty before a holy God and they need rescue and they need They need a savior to take on the wrath they deserve in their place. And that we have that in our precious, glorious Lord Jesus, who died for sinners and was raised to life in victory. You love us well. Help us love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.